If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be in verses 13 through 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. There's uh, an interesting story um, about how the news from the Battle of Waterloo uh, reached uh, London. Uh, The Battle Battle of Waterloo is when Napoleon um, was defeated. Uh, the Duke of Wellington led the Anglo-German-Dutch forces. They were helped by, the, uh, by some others as well and, and in this fight against Napoleon and the French. And this fight was uh, a hard-fought battle. Many, many people died. But in the end, Napoleon was defeated. And the news of the victory, uh, it, it wasn't like today, right? It couldn't just be posted on uh, Twitter. Uh, there's a ship that had to sail across the English Channel um, to England's southern coast. And, and then from there, the news was relayed by, by flags uh, to London. When the report was received in London at uh, the Winchester Cathedral, the flags uh, on top of the cathedral began to spill out uh, that Wellington defeated Napoleon uh, to the city. And so it read, Wellington defeated, but then the fog rolled in and the rest of the message, actually the entire message, was hidden. So the, the city thought that Napoleon had actually been victorious. And this would be devastating news. Uh, The news spread across the nation and and with it just this this feeling of of gloom and and darkness. But then the fog began to lift and the message was clear. It said, Wellington defeated the enemy. So their fears of doubt were unfounded. Uh, their, Their fears of defeat were unfounded. Joy took the place of the gloom and despair that they felt. And literally on the streets... Uh, people started dancing and celebrating that they had victory over uh, one of their most dangerous enemies that the nation had ever faced. And it's easy as a believer to have uh, a feeling like like the fog has just rolled in and our uh, vision of the message of the gospel gets obscured. Actually, we just lived in smoke for almost two weeks and sometimes I think we feel like that in life. We can feel, uh, we can find ourselves despairing and fearful and filled with doubt. 
Um, but Peter is writing to these believers to encourage them to keep following Jesus as their exiles living in a world that rejects Christ even in the face of suffering, to keep following Christ and to proclaim that Jesus is worth everything. Our truth statement is Christians need not fear or despair in our suffering because of Christ's victory over every power and authority, ensuring our victory with Christ. So verse 13 He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. If this does happen, if you suffer for the sake of Christ, you will be blessed. God will give you what you need to stand firm in the grace of God. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Church, what do we have to fear? God will save his people. No matter how bad persecution gets, no matter how big the opposition is, God will save us. What should be feared is judgment that's deserved for sin. But Christians, we do not fear because Jesus took our place. So church, what do we have to fear? He says, don't fear those who persecute you. And in America, uh, the, the church, Christians, really haven't faced much persecution compared to the rest of the world throughout Christian history. But it sure seems like that is changing and has been changing for some time. So he writes, do not be afraid, don't be troubled, uh, don't, don't be shaken up or, or disturbed or frightened. I've always been comforted by 1 John 4.4 4 when, when he writes, little children, You're from God and have overcome the world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What do we do when we suffer for claiming Jesus as our Lord and Savior? How do we stop being afraid or troubled by persecutors? I think he helps us in verse 15 understand that what we need to do is, he says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Right? This is our alternative to fear. And this word here is similar to the word used in uh, Matthew 6, 9, hallowed be your name. When we honor Christ as Lord, we trust that Christ is in control. Human opponents, even demonic powers, are not. To revere Christ is to have this deep confidence within you. It's this anchor for your soul that when when attacks come, when doubts flood you, when you're mocked or even rejected for believing in Christ, you know that Jesus, the King of Kings, has you. You're You're in His hands and He will not let you go. And this is where our confidence is. It's not some simple belief that things will work out because they always do. No, it's that Jesus is Lord over everything. He goes on to say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, uh, for a reason for the hope that is in you. We need to be ready for the opportunity. Be ready to share the reason. Make a defense for why you have placed your hope in Jesus, for why you believe. So, are you ready? Like maybe you go home today and, and because the smoke is finally gone, my guess is more people will be outside. And as you're outside, you bump into a neighbor and they come to you and they say, you know, I've been wanting to ask you something for a while. I've noticed that something about your life is different. And I've heard you talk about being a Christian, that, that you believe in Jesus. Can you tell me why you believe in Jesus? 
what would you say to them? What would you tell them? How would you explain the hope that you have? I hope that you wouldn't say, well, I grew up in church, so I believe in Jesus. I hope that there's a lot more to it than that. And and maybe just even posing this makes you squirm a little bit. My guess is if I took a poll right now of all of us and said who would be ready to share in that situation today, a bunch of people wouldn't feel ready. And, and, and maybe, maybe that's partially because of nerves, but maybe some of you really wouldn't be ready. Maybe you haven't really ever shared your faith. Maybe even with other Christians, you haven't really discussed why you have trusted in Jesus. Uh, I would encourage you today and this week to give some time to the Lord and ask Him for help, to really spend time wrestling with how you would explain, how you would defend, and I think Peter's word there is great, how you would give a defense to the hope that you have in Christ because it matters. right? What Peter is talking about here matters. This is explaining to people the message of hope that would mean salvation for them if they receive Jesus. So will you spend time with God wrestling in this, looking at scripture. He goes on, he says, yet do this with gentleness and respect. And you might remember those two words from our passage last week to wives. And now all of us are told gentleness and respect is to be a part of of how we live, specifically with this. And remember this word translated, respect comes from fear. So this direction of fear is not at man. He's already told us to not be afraid of, of people. No, it's a reverence or a fear directed at Jesus. Our, our fear or reverence is for God as we make a defense for the hope that we have. And this defense should be done with gentleness. We want a response of someone believing. We're not just trying to win an argument. We're trying to win a soul. And we trust that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin and shows Jesus glorious. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He encourages the church, don't just look outwardly good, though he's reminded us over and over again that our our conduct matters. But it's not just looking outwardly good, it's an internal change as well. We're seeking for God to transform us. Being a disciple means becoming more like Jesus in heart, mind, and actions. So Peter isn't saying that you can be perfect. Every one of us, I'm sure, sins every day. What does it look like then for uh, to have a, a good conscience, or h- how does this happen? Well, this is not pursuing sin willfully, right? Not, not running after sin on purpose. It's a turning from sin. It, when we recognize sin, maybe that we have been running after that we turn from it. Do you take your battle with sin seriously? Peter's, Peter's concern here is our witness to the world. Right? That, that we would have a testimony to unbelievers that when they slander you, they'll see your good works in Christ. And, and then it says, and be put to shame, which sounds really strange every time I read it. Now, what does he mean here? I, I believe what Peter's getting at is that uh, this unbelieving person will come to see that they are wrong, that in fact, Christ is Lord. And I don't know if Peter means that that will happen on judgment day. Right, when it's too late to repent, that they'll realize that, that Christ truly is Lord, or if it means 
that, that in this life, as a Christ follower, as you make this defense for the hope that you have in Jesus, that this non-believing person will, will hear your words, they'll line it up with your life, and they'll realize the truth of the gospel and be faced with the question, will I trust in Jesus? And we remember back to 2.12, which we've read, I think, for three or four consecutive weeks now. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which I take that verse as evangelistic. So again, Peter's talking to us about, uh, about this life that we live and the suffering that we may have, that we will face leading directly to gospel opportunities. Are we praying for gospel opportunities? If you haven't already started praying Luke 10.2 regularly, I would encourage you to pray that. This is what it says. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord uh, of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. This should be, for every Christian, just a regular part of our prayers. That we would pray for labors, that we would pray for gospel opportunities in our community. And, and we need to recognize from what Peter's telling us that this might mean that we suffer in order for some of those opportunities to share about Jesus. Uh, another question, if, if you read about suffering in the New Testament, not, not just in 1 Peter here, but if you read about suffering and, and you think, I don't, I've never really suffered for Jesus. Like I've never faced any time, any kind of persecution or slander or, or exclusion for Jesus. Uh, I think we should ask ourselves, if we aren't suffering in any way, are we different than the world? Right? Is our life marked by Jesus? Uh, middle school, I'm sure for all of us, was a really interesting part of growing up. And for those of you who are still in it, you will make it through it. Um, but there were times as a middle schooler when I was loud and crazy and I wanted everyone to notice me. More often though, man, I didn't want anyone to see me. I just wanted to blend in. And I think for decades, Christians have worked really hard at blending in to this world. And this might be part of why we don't find ourselves suffering for Jesus. Let's keep going, though. Peter encourages us in our suffering. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Obviously, our suffering pales in comparison to the suffering of Jesus. But he is the reason that we would be willing to suffer. He, the righteous one, took the place of of the unrighteous, dying the death that we deserved to die. And it's by his death, Peter tells us, that Jesus brings us to God. But he didn't remain dead. As Peter said, he was made alive in the Spirit. And there are all kinds of arguments just about this little part of this verse here. Uh, what does it mean, alive in the Spirit? Some take it to mean alive by the Spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. Others, uh, others take it alive in spirit uh, um, as opposed to alive in the flesh, um, which I do, I can see how that fits with where Peter uh, has emphasized our suffering as being temporary, right? That compared to eternity, uh, our suffering is, is momentary. So I can't imagine um, maybe he's saying that. But I do hope what is clear 
uh, in today's passage is that in the death of Christ, his resurrection, ascension, Jesus is victorious. We're about to get into all kinds of theories about two verses here, and we could get really lost, but I want us to know that Jesus is victorious. We need to know that as believers. We need to be ready to proclaim that to people who don't know Jesus. So here's the tricky part, and this is what Luther said. Um, He said, A wonderful text uh, and a more obscure passion perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. So I don't know if you feel good. As a preacher, I feel great right now. All right, verse 19. He says, in which he went and proclaimed, and this word doesn't necessarily mean preach, though it could. So he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So this passage is debated. Every author I read, every podcast I listened to acknowledged that what they think Peter means here, they could be wrong. They, they could be off. So I'm going to lay out some, some of the mainstream theories. I'm going to eliminate some. Uh, at some point, I'll give you what I think um, and hopefully help us see uh, what we can be sure of and, and what this does mean for all believers of all times in all places. So here's some of the main questions that, that you find yourself asking as you read just these two verses. Uh, where did Jesus go? What did he, uh, when did he go there? Sorry. Uh, who did he speak to and what did he say? Right? Where did Jesus go? When did he go there? Who did he speak to and what did he say? And, and there are different possible answers to each of those questions, um, none of which I think can make you fully confident in, in what you think it is. Uh, one podcast that, that I listened to that was really uh, interesting and helpful from uh, Western Seminary, I think the podcast is called Food Trucks in Babylon, something like that. Um, Professor Todd Miles on that episode said he was 51% sure that his take on this passage was right. So uh, we approach scripture with humility. Uh, So option one, uh, this is a second chance for uh, the rebellious. So Christ, between his death and resurrection, went to the place of the dead, right? We read in, in scripture, they call it Sheol or Hades. Um, he's speaking to humans who, who are now dead, obviously. They had rejected God while living on earth, right? They did not turn to God. So Jesus then, he comes to proclaim the gospel to them, thus giving them a second chance to repent. I think we eliminate this one right off the bat. Um, the rest of Scripture, as we look at the whole of Scripture, it does not speak as if people will have a chance to repent after they die. I think Hebrews is really clear. You die and then judgment comes. Uh, so I don't see in Scripture at all uh, a place where, or an opportunity for the dead to repent and turn to Christ and be saved. Uh, I, I think Peter's clear about that. I think Paul's clear about that. I think Scripture's clear about that. Option number two. Jesus goes to release Old Testament believers. So again, Jesus going to Sheol, Hades, the place of the dead. Um, this is between the time of his death and resurrection. He's speaking to Old Testament saints, right? Those who 
placed their faith in God, um, but couldn't have faith in Jesus yet because he hadn't died for them yet. So Jesus comes, he proclaims the gospel to them that he died in their place. They respond, they are saved. Um, they're released from prison. Um, I've read people that make a, a, actually good arguments for this. I, when I first read this one, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think so. But the more I looked into it, there, there are some good arguments here. Um, I have two, two problems with this that I'll, I'll briefly talk about. Um, I, I don't think Peter's words here uh, work well with this interpretation. One, it just seems like a really big leap from this passage to, to that concept, though that, it, it, yeah. To me, it seems like a big leap. Um, My bigger problem, though, is the way he talks about them not obeying, their disobedience. I I can't wrap my mind around why Peter would emphasize disobedience if he's writing about Old Testament saints, especially in this letter when he talks about did not obey. That's, That's always not obeying the gospel, not responding to the gospel. So obviously, Old Testament believers disobeyed in the sense that they sinned like everyone sins, but they didn't disobey in the sense that they didn't place their faith in God. So I say all that, that one could be right still. I just, I don't see it. Uh, option three, and I gotta keep going here. Um, Jesus goes and proclaims victory um, uh, to rebellious human spirits. So again, this is in uh, Sheol, Hades, between death and resurrection. Again, the, these these are people that that died. They're, they're human spirits, and he comes and proclaims his victory um, uh, o- over sin and death. Option four. Um, victory over fallen angels. This could be either before the resurrection or after the resurrection. He's coming and proclaiming to uh, the spirits that are fallen angels. Christ is proclaiming victory over them, right? This kind of feels like an in-your-face, like booyah moment uh, that Jesus has here. And I don't know if my problem with this one is it feels so weird to me, but I have to admit that um, I also have to admit the immediate context could lend to this one. So verse 22, which we'll get to in a little bit, he, he says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In his next letter in 2.4, he says, for God did not spare uh, angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Jude 6, um, I won't read it, but, but it also supports this. So this is Coming from Genesis 6, okay? I don't know if you remember this or not in Genesis 6. It's just before uh, Noah uh, builds the ark and everything. Um, Genesis 6, fallen angels see human women. They're attracted to them and somehow, I don't understand, they procreate, right? Super weird passage. Kind of glad we don't have time to get into it right now. Um, So these fallen angels are judged And Jesus is coming to proclaim uh, victory over them. Uh, So here's actually, though, how I see that this could fit, or or how I read and was convinced this could fit, is what I should say, Um, with with Peter's message to these churches in Asia Minor. Peter's writing to them. He's he's talking to them about the world around them that's persecuting them, that there are spiritual forces behind this persecution but that Jesus in his death, 
resurrection and ascension proclaims that he has conquered. He is victorious. Evil does not win, even if it seems right now like evil has the upper hand. And he's saying, keep on following Christ. And Christ's victory will be your victory. It is your victory. So maybe it's that one. I don't know. Option five, um, Jesus preached through Noah. So where, this is on earth, when, this is back in Noah's day. The human spirits are, are the, or the spirits of the humans in Noah's day. So these are wicked people who rejected God during Noah's life. Jesus was preaching, proclaiming through Noah the gospel. Noah was a prophet. Um, this is the one that has always made the most sense to me, and, and most of it's because of the immediate context. Uh, between our elders and staff, I think I'm, I'm one of two people that thinks this one makes the most sense, so that tells you something. Um, uh, verse 10, I, I always come back to verse 10 and 11 when I, when I read um, this verse here. It says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he preached the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So when I read that, that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, I go back to chapter 1. And it's through that lens that it sounds to me that, that Christ, through Noah, preached the gospel to people around him who disobeyed by rejecting the message that Noah preached. These spirits, therefore, are human spirits that were preached to and are now in prison because they rejected that message. Second Peter 2.5, I won't read it, but, but uh, Noah is mentioned there again. He's a herald of righteousness. He's, he, he's proclaim, he was a proclaimer of uh, God's message. Um, so there are parallels that I can see here with Noah and, and with uh, Peter's message to uh, these churches in Asia Minor. Noah was a righteous, holy, God-fearing man. Peter continues to exhort Christians to live holy lives with good conduct, fearing God, not man. Noah and a few were the only God-fearing people. Right? They were surrounded by wicked people who rejected God. Peter continues to encourage, his, to encourage these churches uh, who, who are in the middle of a culture that rejects God. And I, I'm sure it seemed like there were but a few of them. Noah boldly proclaimed the message. Peter, he's been talking for weeks now as we've been going through this passage uh, about believers being a witness to the world around them. Noah knew that judgment was coming soon. Peter tells the churches that judgment is forthcoming. And with Noah, it was Noah and, and a few that were saved, eight people that were saved, but God was faithful to save them. And Peter to these churches tells them, be confident that God will save, right? Even if it's just a few, God will save every believer. So I, I think the application um, with this one is continue to proclaim the gospel, right? Even in a hostile society and know that Christ is victorious. So that's my opinion on this passage. I'm not saying I'm convinced. It's the one I lean towards. If I'm 100% honest, at some point I realize that maybe I lean towards this because this is the least weird option to me. They're all pretty strange, but, but this is the one that, that is the least strange. 
But I do think that no matter which the options it is, and even if you don't remember any of the options, that's okay. No matter which it is, we should be encouraged. Um, there's an encouragement for us to be bold in our proclamation that Jesus is Lord, that he reigns, that death did not defeat him, that, that we can be confident that e even just with a few like Noah, that, that God will certainly save. And we're reminded that just as certainly as the flood came as judgment, so final judgment will certainly come to our world as well. And Christ will ultimately triumph over the universe. And there's way more that can be said. I know the men's Bible study did this, I think, a couple months ago. Um, you, can, you can do a deep dive into all the theories and have a lot of fun discussing all this. I'll, I'll uh, post some resources this week that, that I, th I think you could um, really enjoy and would be helpful. Let's keep going, though, because now we got another tricky part, though I don't think it's as tricky. Um, verse 21, it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the water of baptism is like the flood water of judgment. There is death with Christ as we, uh, as we go in and, come up, and coming up out of the water um, is us being kept safe from the water of judgment and, and, and coming to new life in Christ. But what's confusing here is, is when he says that baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. So I think what he's doing here, or I actually I'm convinced that what he's doing is he's taking away anything mystical or magical about being baptized. It's, it's not the removal of dirt, he says, right? It's, it's not an outward act like, like when I go to the shower to, to scrub off dirt or sweat. You can't just get baptized and then, and, and then you're magically saved and then you can live however you want. That would not fit with Peter's message. Instead of this outward um, thing, it, it represents what God is doing inside of you. He says it's, it's an appeal or a pledge to God for good conscience, right? You're appealing to God to forgive this sinner and make my heart clean. Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I love, um, I love baptism. I love getting to, getting to have baptisms in our church. It's this beautiful drama to me that, that we, we play out the union of Christ in his death and resurrection. It's the believer proclaiming, saying, I need you to make me clean. Uh, otherwise, I'm dead in my sin. I need Christ who died and was resurrected. And because of his death, I passed through the floodwaters of judgment like Noah. Our baptism, it's a proclamation that we are united with Christ in his death and his life. And then Peter reminds us in verse 22 that he's ascended, that he reigns. It says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been, uh, having been subjected to him. He's sitting at the right hand. Um, commentators uh, uh, help us understand that, that this signified that one acted with the king's authority and power, which is amazing because it couldn't have looked worse for Jesus on that Good Friday as he died a humiliating death on the cross. The hopes of his followers were dashed that he would reign and overthrow the powers uh, of, of God's 
uh, of the oppressors of God's people. But then on the third day, he rose. He was victorious. He was vindicated. He ascended. He reigns in power. The one who subjected himself to a horrible death for sinners now has all powers, angels, and authorities subjected to him. And you see the reversal there. Christ was subject and now everything is subject to him. He is victorious and his victory is ours. Even if it doesn't feel like it right now, there will come a day when everyone will recognize who Jesus is and confess that everything scripture says about Jesus is true. Do you live like Jesus is victorious? Do the circumstances of life keep you from recognizing the victory that you have in Jesus. You remember the story I told of the fog in London after the Battle of Waterloo. And Peter, he wrote to Christians who were facing a ton of opposition for believing in Christ. And after this letter was given to them, they faced even more opposition. They were weary from living in a culture that rejected Christ, that slandered them, that excluded them. I'm sure it felt like they were in a fog, probably like the disciples must have felt on that Good Friday. I'm sure it felt like there was this heavy fog descending on them. But then on the third day, the fog had lifted and it became clear that Christ was not defeated. No, he was vindicated. He was victorious. And that Christ's victory means victory for all who believe in him, no matter what circumstances you may face. So Peter's message to the early church is for all believers in all places, in all times. There will be times when we're tempted to despair or to be afraid, tempted to be quiet about knowing Jesus personally. There'll be times when it seems like there are so few who believe in Jesus, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. And the pressure from the world might be overwhelming, but Peter encourages us that because of Christ's victory, we have victory. We can endure suffering for the name of Jesus because he suffered and died for us with the hope that maybe we'll be able to share the gospel with those who have not yet responded to Jesus. It, it, it may appear that the unbelieving culture around us has the upper hand. And sometimes there are attacks that are directed at you from friends, maybe family. People mock you for your trust in Jesus, and, and it feels like it's more than you can handle. It feels like that fog has rolled in, and it's all that we can see. But what we need to see is that Jesus died, he rose, he ascended, that everything is subject to him, that his victory is our victory. We pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I, I, uh, I mean, I'm literally tired, Lord, from, from wrestling through this passage this week. And, and yet, God, it was so good for me to be reminded through, through some, some hard, weird verses, Lord, to be reminded of, of the victory that you have won for us, Lord, that it is absolutely sure that, that our suffering in this life Suffering for you is totally worth it. And God, we want people to come to see that you are Lord, that you are real, that you died for them. Lord, would, would we be a people that are ready? We're ready, if someone asks us, we're ready to talk about why we know you and love you, why we've, why we've given our lives to follow you, Jesus. And I pray that we would have lives 
that, that are marked by you, Jesus, that, that we would have lives that look different because you have radically changed us, Lord. Jesus, we love you, and I pray that as we sing these songs, our hearts truly would worship you and proclaim uh, praises uh, to the Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.